0: And so then we have a a fact on our website where we have about 100, where we give answers. We're gonna do the simple, hopefully somewhat fun stuff in here, but we will also, uh, there's more technical stuff at the end too because they ask questions about hard topics. So I called it Fascinating Facts here. The subtitle is Puzzling Problems. I figured you'd be more likely to come if it said Fascinating Facts and Puzzling (laughs) Problems. So I just left that part out. And so we'll be taking kind of the categories, people of the Bible, places of the Bible, things of the Bible, and we'll try to do uh, separate things. Does it bother you if I walk back and forth? That's okay. I'll try to stay in the middle. The remote isn't up here, so I have to use the button. In the book, if you have the book, I'm not gonna talk about Bible translation But our whole philosophy of Bible translation is kind of outlined in the the book, pages 3 to 9, if you want to read those. If you like to read, you see Wartburgproject.org. free library there. Easy stuff, hard stuff, anything you want. About 100 facts, frequently asked questions. That's kind of what we're doing. Most of these are kind of like facts, and so that's something else you can look at. We're going to do some people in the Bible today. And basically, the the hard decision we have here, should we talk a little bit about a lot of things or a lot about a few things? I decided for this purpose we'll talk a little bit about a lot of things. Because when we do the PowerPoints, you'll see there's numbers up in the corner there. If you have the book and you want more detail, you can... uh, check there and so we're for our first question is going to be how tall is Goliath and one of the first main principles you understand when you're working on translation every question you receive that you're going to answer it turns out to be more complicated than you thought <laughs> and not nearly as simple as you were hoping so how tall is Goliath you think well that's pretty easy the Bible says he was six cubits and a span Although handbooks say a cubit is 18 inches. So all you got to do is multiply 6.5 times 18, and you come up with 9-something. But the problem is, in ancient times, there were no set measurements. Everybody did their own thing. The either project, you gave the workers a chord of how big you wanted the cubit to be. Standard measurements are a relatively recent thing. Standard time did not become common until the mid-1800s. If you wanted to know when it was noon, what did you do? Looked up. If you wanted to know when it was 6 a.m., when the sun rose. You wanted to know when it was 6 p.m., when the sun set. So it was very simple. What made standardization necessary? The railroads. Because people could move too fast and they needed standard time. So there is no standard time. So a cubit can be quite a bit of variety. A cubit, they say, is 18 inches but a cubit is actually from here to there. If you want to check your cubits, I'll even allow you to check your cubit as we're going along, (laughs) or other things. So a cubit, you can check your cubit. So if you have an 18 inch cubit, my cubit is 19 and a half inches. A 15 inch cubit, would be almost 20 inches. Would be much shorter. See, almost 20 inches shorter. So you'd reduce Goliath's height by 20 inches. Now the question comes: How was Goliath measured? Well, maybe the Philistine PR guy had put out a flyer: "Come and see our nine-foot-six guy crush Israel's champion." Or what's the other big possibility? When Goliath hit the deck. Some Israelite ran up and measured him. And so they could do the cubits. The easy way to do a cubit wouldn't be like this. This is a half cubit. So you go like this and you keep leapfrogging until you got enough cubits. What was the practical problem? What happened to Goliath after David killed him? Is what? It didn't fall off. <laughs> okay, it fell off. So that would be a problem. I can imagine there was a young Israelite soldier out there trying to measure Goliath, and David's up there. Like, Give me a break, kid. I'm trying to take a measurement here. Hold up. And he's trying to measure Goliath. Well, he can. What did David do with Goliath's head? He sent it to Jerusalem. Oh, you knew already. Okay. But I think more than that. He sent it. That's a good answer, though. He sent it to Jerusalem. Bethlehem where David lived was just a little town, like sending it to a Oconomowoc or something. He wanted to send it to Milwaukee or Madison. So he sent it to Jerusalem, why? I think he was telling the Jebusites, you're next. They were pretty happy to have the Philistines gone, but he was, David lived five miles from there. It really irritated them that Israel didn't have Jerusalem. So I think he was telling them, you're next. So a simple thing like this, and there's further complications, Turns out to be not as easy as we might thought, think. So what are some body parts used to measure things? You know, one, a cubit. The other one is, is this a yardstick? I have a, What's that? That's the yard. That's the yard. This is the fathom. palm or hand breadth, the span, which conveniently you can try that too. See if your span is half your cubit. Your span should be about half your cubit. So the span will be half your cubit. Uh, what's the other one we use most often? Well, we don't think about it anymore. This one. What's this one? It's an inch. That's the inch. The other one, which maybe you don't like, I'll be, make a sexy here. maybe the ladies are more sensitive than the guys, is your, what's your foot? What's the foot? Twelve inches, I think that was Henry VIII's foot. I won't ask you to buy a show of hands, but you can say, how many of you here have a foot that's a foot long? I'm guessing a definite minority. I think mine is about a foot long. So you can use these different measurements. So universal measurements became necessary. The railroad needed standard time. Another one is, does anybody know what the hand measures? Horses. 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 So one farmer writes to the other one, says, I got a horse that's 10 hands high or 15 hands high. The other guy comes and he measures it. You liar, that's not 10 hands high. (coughs) because they had different sized hands. So now they've standardized hands. So one thing to remember in the Bible, all the measurements are approximations. If you're building a house, you're doing it yourself probably, so you got a cord. So you either make a rope, like a five cubit rope, or a five cubit stick, and all the workmen on a project like the temple, they have to have the right thing. It do- why doesn't it matter if you all have the same measurement? What's the only thing that matters? Huh? Honesty. Honesty. how would that be reflected? That you, you've got to use the same cubit when you're selling stuff as when you're buying stuff. I must have been pretty young. My mom died when I was 10. I remember going and she would buy material for sewing and they'd have all these big bolts of material and the thing. And the lady would bring out a bolt of material and she, my mother would say, four yards, and the lady would go. Four yards, And so the only thing important is that you sell with the same standard as you buy. When we're buying stuff, we use my cubit. <laughs> when we're selling stuff, we use Irene's cubit. <laughs> <laughs> but we've been caught on that already, so we can't really redo really that anymore. There are different cubits. This is a yardstick, it's a 48-inch yardstick. It actually doesn't say yardstick on it, it says Thrifty Max Ace Hardware so there were big cubits, too. There were kings like big. Like Henry VIII used himself as all the standards. So measurements are never exact. They give you approximation. So when you use your standard cubit converter online, you, know, you just plug in the numbers, and it will tell you this was 313 feet, 0.6678910. That's nonsense, isn't it? <laughs> The computer will turn those out. But we don't even know what the qubit is exactly. So when you're trying to use decimal points, you could always round them off or something so they make sense. So that's just the issue of measurements. And it runs throughout the Bible. So the world was arranged very differently. The French Revolution kind of started popularizing measurements with the metric system. So uh, the late 1700s. They always say Napoleon was so short, they made fun of him, you know, the little short guy. He actually wasn't short, because his measurements were in French inches, not British inches. So he was 5'6", which was normal size. British cartoons portrayed him little, which probably maybe was a political truth, but not a physical truth. So his measurements are a funny thing in the Bible. And you can read more about them. You see pages 130 to 137? If you want to read more about measurements, that's something you can read. It's a little bit beyond our our purpose here. I mean, you can give me a 10 o'clock, or give me a 9.45 and a 10 o'clock. All right. The Philistines. Who were the Philistines? Well, I have a book on the Philistines, my dissertation, which is about this big and about this big and about 500 pages. It's good for teachers to have a book like that. Why? Because if your students are being bad, I never had any bad students, of course. At Charlotte, certainly, I never had any bad students. But if your students are bad and detention doesn't phase them, you can say, if you don't shave up, you're going to have to read my book. <laughs> that shapes them up pretty fast and gives them a thrill. So all we're gonna do to talk about today is just again how names are confusing. Why is that? Adam were named animals, but God didn't put any names on the world. We look at God's world and we divide things up into categories. Like even where what's a fish and what's a mammal. Are bats a bird? Well, the Hebrew word is fire. What's blue and what's green? Different people will sort them very differently. So that's why words don't match from one language to another, because one culture's bins, as in which they put things, these are red, these are orange, these are purple, these are mammals, these are fish, they aren't the same. And so most translations, I'd say almost all translations are approximations. And we'll see some examples of that when we talk about musical instruments and some other things. So who were the most famous Philistines? Excellent answer, but wrong. (laughs) Anybody else have a pick? Delilah. Delilah and Goliath. It's right, but it's wrong. Here's a Philistine. In Egypt, they discovered there was a people called the PLST. There were no vowels. They said, that's got to be the Philistines. So there's lots of pictures of the Philistines in Egypt that are a temple called Medinet Habu. I was able to visit there. My guide arranged a taxi driver for me. Irene and Paul went to the pool and took a siesta. And so you're able to get pictures. All of our good pictures of people at this time, of, baking, of brewing beer, making mud bricks, they're almost all in Egypt in the tombs where they're protected from the weather. So if you want to see how did they brew, you've got models that they made to go along with the king. So there's lots of pictures there. And these are the PLST. They were during the time of the judges. Here you see their are Egyptian prisoners of war. This is the temple at medina habu They probably came from out in the Mediterranean. They were Kind of like pirate crews, I'd say, almost, or like the Vikings. Kind of a motley crew. Sometimes they were on Egypt's side. Sometimes they were on the Hittite side. They probably switched depending on the paychecks. So they switched from side to side. So you've got these PLST. And notice their headdress here. It'll be important later on. Most people will say Goliath. Goliath is by far the most famous. Why did I mark it wrong? Because the Philistines were like the British. There were different layers. If you're talking about Philistines at the time of Abraham, it's a completely different thing than the Philistines at the time of Saul. Because the Aegean, the Mediterranean, the Greek layer, hadn't come yet. They were more like Canaanites. So like the British, you know, they had the Britons, you had the Celts, you had the Angles, the Saxons, you had the Normans, and so on. That's the way the Philistines were. Goliath seems to be a member of a group of giants called the Anakim, or more often, the Ruphaim, where David and his men used to fight the giants. It's called, the, in Hebrew, Emek Riphaim, the Valley of the Giants. So this was, it was, they were kind of like, in Africa, you know, the Watusi are pretty tall, at least they used to be pretty tall. If you see 2 Samuel 21, you find that Goliath was not the only guy of this race, who were now Philistines, to be like the Celts in Britain or something. He was not the only guy of this race, there were other guys. Several other of David's heroes fought different ones of these giants. So Goliath was a, we'll say as his passport and citizenship, Goliath was a Philistine. Ethnically, he was not of the same Philistine stock as the Philistines, the Sarans and stuff of the Philistines at the time of Saul. Well, what about Delilah? David, uh, Samson did have a a wife from the Philistines. She got burned by her family for being too cozy with Samson. It never says that Delilah was a Philistine. She lives kind of right in the edge of the Philistine Israel border territory. Kind of on part that's often Israel part. It's as likely that Delilah, and she got a really big treasure payoff. The The payoff was massive. It was like equivalent to millions of dollars today. She got a really big payoff. I think she was an Israelite trader, maybe more so than an ethnic Philistine, but we really don't know that. So ethnicity is another thing that's very tricky. And we might have time to look at a couple of other examples later. (laughs) Any questions there? So we talked about how measurements are inexact, Names are often inexact, so you have to realize a lot of translations are approximations. The unclean birds or the gemstones on the high priest's breastplate were kind of taking a guess. Even the rabbis 2,000 years ago said, we're in the dark here. <laughs> we know it's a stone. We might know what color it is, but we're taking a guess on what it actually is. So did David have red hair? This was an example of a question we got because our translation said David had red hair. And somebody said, well, where in the world do you get that? Jews are, Jews are dark skinned and they have black hair. <clears throat> well, again, that's wrong. <clears throat> Jews can be anything in the spectrum, especially today, but even then, they, there was very much racial mixture going on there. The Hebrew word said David was Adomi, reddish. And that makes him different than his brothers. And when some people looked at David, that was one of the first things they noticed. He's He's rusty, he's red. The Bibles often say ruddy. Well, that's a nice translation because nobody knows exactly what ruddy means. And red hair and a reddish complexion quite often go together, but not necessarily. So there were red-headed people in the ancient Near East, but red would have been a striking case. A tomb in Jerusalem from about Jesus' time had a skeleton that still had some hair left, and it was described as reddish. Several pharaohs in Egypt had red hair. And sometimes the the red is only on top because they were dying it red and it's white at the bottom. But they understood they dyed their hair the same color their original hair had been. So if you've got a dead pharaoh with gray hair down here and red hair up here, he probably was red when he was young. So David, well, may have been red. Some other famous people that supposedly were red were Adam and Eve. Nothing in the Bible said that, but their word Adam is the same root as red. Helen of Troy supposedly was red. Alexander the Great was red. Often people that were rather dynamic were the people that the legend said were red, so we don't know. So did David have red here? The answer is yes, no, maybe, we don't know. If you study this now, when we get the question, if you study this for about 10 hours, what will the answer be? Yes, no, maybe, we don't know for sure. But we, we stayed with red, so it's an interesting tradition. It again shows the problem of terms going from language to language. Since that topic of red hair came up, I thought I'd digress a little bit and talk about skin color and hair color in the ancient Near East. A lot of people will say, well, Simon of Cyrene was from Africa, North Africa, so he must have been black. No, he was Jewish, very likely. I think the Ethiopian eunuch, it it does apply, it seems that he wasn't an ethnic Ethiopian, which would be black. People say, well, the pharaohs were black because they were African. No, they weren't. There were black pharaohs who came in and took over. What kind of pharaoh was Cleopatra? Cleopatra. She was white. She was Greek, at least tan. So Cleopatra was not a native Egyptian. She was the pharaoh of Egypt, but she was Greek. She tried at her best to be a real Egyptian. So in the Egyptian things, generally there's four main skin types. The one on this side is, I'll, I'll go to the next one. The, the Libyan, North Africans today, there's black people there, but they were light-skinned. The Berbers are fairly light. They're generally considered Caucasian. The Kushites, that's the country that's Sudan today. They were black, quite dark black. So when there's a Bible, somebody named Kushi, and there were Kushites, mercenaries and stuff in Israel, somebody in the Bible's name is Kushi. It may be that he was black, or it may be just, you know, people weren't always very sensitive about the nicknames they gave to other people. <laughs> He may have just been a dark-skinned person, and they called him <laughs> Cushy. That's the way it was. The Canaanites, that's the most interesting to us. The Shashu, they're called. Those are the closest ones to the Israelites. They're from pal But what was still Canaan then, it wasn't Israel yet. They were light-skinned. Notice the Egyptians. The Egyptians portray themselves as a, a little bit darker brown. So the Egyptians are between the Canaanites, who are white, and the Libyans and the Kushites, who are black. And, of course, there's every possible kind of mixture that they have. Again, this comes from Egyptian tomb paintings. You have to use this a little bit with caution because the people that made the drawings of the tombs, they, of course, enhanced them somewhat. So are they really accurate or not? It seems that they are pretty accurate. These ones are the most interesting. These are people coming from Canaan with a donkey caravan at a tomb called Bnei Hassan, and they're coming to Egypt. You see the Egyptians are checking them in at the border. They're bringing antelopes, probably not for lunch, but probably because Pharaoh likes to have them in his botanical gardens and that, so they're selling them antelopes. So you've got the Egyptians, and the rest of these are all Canaanites. How did Joseph's brothers look? Did they look a lot like Canaanites? Ethnically, they were about the same. If you saw a Jebusite, a parasite, a Girgashite, a bunch of people on the street corner talking, could you, Jebusite, Girgashite, could you do it by their skin color, their hair color? Could you do it by their accent? Maybe they spoke the same language. Peter, they spotted him as a Galilean right off the bat, didn't they? No way you're a Galilean, don't, don't try to fool us. So could you tell the difference? Again, the answer is, we don't know, yeah, we don't know there might be some indications. So this is the closest you're going to get to a picture of Joseph's brothers. These people are neighbors of Joseph's brothers, but how close do they look? Are they the same or different? This is kind of an interesting picture in a number of ways. What do you notice about them? Not quite as much in this picture, but of ancient people, what were their favorite colors? Red, white, and blue. Red, white, and blue, right? Because if you go to Egyptian temple and you can see a little paint up on the ceiling, it's usually red, white, or blue. So red, white, and blue. Their dress is kind of interesting. The women have longer tunics. The men, the more they're working, the shorter they are. So they're a little longer. If you're, they're traveling duds, a little shorter, if, like a kilt, if they're, they're working duds. Another interesting thing there, one interesting thing, I'll get off camera here, This guy right here and this thing right here. What the guy is carrying is a harp. It's not actually a harp, it's a lyre. David didn't play a harp, played a lyre. Could be quite similar to the one David played. We have other pictures from Israel. The thing on the donkey there means these guys were doing metal work. Those are bellows. so They were kind of like blacksmiths or brass workers or something like that. The other interesting thing to me a little bit... Do you notice any interesting fashion things in there? The men wear sandals and the women wear army boots. Or at least ski boots or something like that. So I'm sure that was not a universal thing but maybe for traveling. The men are all wearing in sandals and the women are wearing uh, high, at the least, very least low cut sneakers. This is what the pictures actually look like before the artist enhanced them. Even these, you know, you can nowadays, if you took a bad picture on your phone, you can fix it a little bit. So you have to be a little bit skeptical. The bottom one is almost reddish, but you can see there's a very clear difference in skin color between the Egyptians and the Canaanites. Where the Egyptians are dark-skinned and the Canaanites are lighter-skinned. And Joseph's family, the Israelites, basically their ethnic background was Aramean, Syrian. They of course had been in Egypt, probably had some Egyptian wives, they had Canaanite wives, so they were pretty much of a, a mixture. It was never a, a strict ethnic identity. So anything about skin color, again, it's a, the main point that is a warning beware of stereotypes. You can, you can deduce very little of what Jew, people were like at Jesus' time from looking at Jews today or people in Palestine today. There's just been too much. In Israel, Jews that came from Russia look more Russian and they have more red hair. Jews that came from Yemen look more like Arabs. Jews that came from Ethiopia are darker. So there was always this constant blend of people. last picture was that color actually still there when they Yeah. Did the yes, but with, yeah, but with, with your camera you can, you know, you can spruce it up a little bit. There was that Oh yeah, in some of the Egyptian temples, the Egyptian temples if you didn't know, there's one at Milwaukee Museum, and the Temple of Israel, they were all painted in living color. Greek statues mostly were not white marble, they were all painted. If you go to Egyptian temples and you look up at the ceiling, some places you can still see some of the color. There are some stones in the ruins of the Temple of Jerusalem that still have the color. And what, naturally, what was the color? Red, white, and blue. <laughs> Red, white, and blue. I hope the Arabs haven't figured that out because they'll destroy it if they find the, I mean, those stones. Now you can see them there. But there's the paint, because they were underground for centuries, the paint is still there. <clears throat> Okay so anything about that again it's a everything is more complicated than people start thinking with their preconceptions i think it's probably different it's probably You know, different kind of tassels. He asked if the tassels they were wearing were related to the tassels the Jews wear. I said it's not impossible, but it could have been that the Jews took it because it was already an existing cultural thing and they gave it their own meaning. But again, you can't say for sure. Okay, then the wise men is an English translation. The word is magi, magi, or magoi is a little bit closer. The magoi then became called the wise men. What is our word for them today? Magician. Magician. Because some of them were considered kind of shady. Well, what were they, magi, really? They were astronomer astrologers. Why do I have a slash there? Because, because between being an astronomer and astrologer, there wasn't really any sharp line. Even some of the Lutherans like Melanchthon that were kind of into this, they... You know, got a little bit of the astrology. So, how many were there? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. Some traditions say three, that's the one we know the best. Some say as many as 12, I suppose for the 12 apostles, or the 12 tribes of Israel or something. Some people say the three is based on the three gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Three gifts, three magi. That may be correct, but there's a not a lot nicer legend, but I think it's somewhat unlikely. There were three of them because one had to be white, one had to be brown, and one had to be black because they had to represent all mankind, Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So in many medieval pictures, you see them presented as sometimes two two kind of brownish ones and one black one, sometimes quite white, brown, and black. How did they become kings? That's very popular, especially in the Hispanic tradition three kings. They became kings from the Psalms. Psalm 72 says kings will come. Isaiah 60 says kings will come. And so people took the two accounts and blended them together. So the Magi, Magi, whatever you want to call them, it's highly unlikely that they were kings. How many and from where? The black one is usually called either Casper or Gaspar. Again, there's not uniformity on the traditional names for the wise men. You see in the middle too, you have pretty good skin color. So when you're in a medieval uh, Middle Ages museum sometime and you're looking for uh, pictures and you see some of the magi, take a look at what color are the wise men because it might be interesting and... Significant. If you follow the tradition of three, where did they come from? Kings will come from Sheba, which is Semitic, Seba, which is African, and Persia, the Iranians today are not Arabs. They are Indo-Europeans. So from Persia. I think they probably all came from Babylon, Persia. But if this map... Is correct, then you have one Indo European, one African, one Middle Easterner. Probably not true, but it's actually a nicer tradition than the other one, isn't it? There are some nice traditions. In, the, in Jerusalem, in the Holy Sepulchre, right below Calvary, there's a place called the Chapel of Adam. And they believe that Adam was buried there. I don't think that's true. But again, when you're looking at art in a museum, as a crucifixion, look at the picture and you'll see blood running down from Christ. And it's running down onto a skull. You think, oh, it's a skull, that's just a skull. No. That's supposed to be Adam's skull. In other words, I think it's not a true tradition, but it's a really nice one, isn't it? That when Christ's blood died of the second Adam, his blood ran down on the resting place of Adam. So sometimes traditions, even if they're not quite technically correct, they sometimes show a nice message. They are at least thinking of good messages. Okay, anything there? I think I'll take a drink here. I'm a little bit dry. Anything there? What time? 10. Okay. We'll kind of try to finish most of the people, but we're not bound to a tight schedule here. We want to quit a quarter after, so give me a 10 after. What about their star? The word is star. All kinds of theories about it. Again, none of them proven. Conjunction of planets. That would be very significant to astrologers. Comet. Doesn't fit. Supernova. Probably not. A special creation. I think that's what it is. Could be partly number one. But the question of the translation, when did the Magi see the star? Most translations, they saw the star in the east. But it's not the same Greek word that says the Magi were in the east. It really means in its rising. That's what the word east means. The word east means rising. So they saw the star in its rising. That's what would be significant to astronomers. When does it appear? In the east, where else are they going to see it? They they live in the east, they're going to see it in the east. Where do stars rise? They all rise in the east. So it must be, they saw it when it rose. It may even have, like Venus, it may have disappeared and come back. I, I think it has to be, it could be partly natural, but I think it has to be supernatural. It doesn't really work otherwise. Okay, anything there? Another very useful thing in Bible study is to know the approximate mileage. We'll talk about places and how to find lost places. We'll talk about that next week. Did Elijah run a marathon? All the text tells us is that Elijah was way over here on Mount Carmel. He dispatched the priest Baal. Ahab was going to Jezreel, which is over here. That doesn't mean much unless you look at the geography and figure out the miles. Elijah was an old guy on foot. Ahab had a chariot. They were going in a driving rainstorm. Elijah beat Ahab, and he's over there. Been waiting for you, Ahab. What's, What's holding you up here? Get some new horses or something. And so when you realize that that was probably about 17 or 18 miles, it's a little more significant than if it's, you know, two miles or something like that. So, no, I don't think Elijah ran a marathon, but probably a half marathon. And so to know the distances and stuff that's going on helps you a lot in Bible stories. <laughs> Were there aliens in the Bible? <laughs> this started because we had used the term resident alien frequently. And people said, that's terrible, people will think it's ET. So don't, you can't use aliens. Then people said, well, aliens is a, not a good word, <laughs> politically incorrect. This was about the time that President Trump had put a ban on people from coming from certain countries or something like that. I think it was mostly countries that he claimed were terrorists. So we looked it up in the official documents that President Trump had used. The term resident aliens was in those documents more than 300 times. So resident alien is exactly the correct legal term now. I don't know for how long. What's a resident alien? It's like somebody that's in the United States that has permission to be there and work, but they're not citizens. Abraham was never gonna be accepted, even though it was his land, he was never gonna be accepted by the Canaanites as one of them. He was always gonna be considered an alien so there were resident aliens and sometimes the distinction is important because people who are just there sojourning there they aren't necessarily resident aliens they don't necessarily have permission so some passages is important that you translate which ones are what we would call citizens which ones are there and they're not nobody's kicking them out but they're not legally recognized and ones who have permission to be there the religious rules for resident aliens were also different. If they became circumcised and became Israelites, then they could participate fully in the religious things. So were there aliens in the Bible? Yes, three kinds. Not the ex- that extraterrestrial kind. What are the two kinds of extraterrestrials in the Bible? Which one? I'd say it a little bit louder. Um, Oh yeah, in the last day, but I mean right now. Or in Bible times. Angels and demons. And some people think that the Bible, when it says there were angels and demons, they said, well, that was really terrestrial, extraterrestrials, ETs, nasty ETs, and nice ETs, and nobody knew the difference. So yes, there were three kinds of aliens. Resident aliens who were people, angels, and demons. What do we have? Five minutes yet? Okay, we'll just do a few more little people things. We'll do a couple of them. See if we have time for more. Somebody said, "Well, you shouldn't call John the Baptist the Baptist. He obviously was a Lutheran. <coughs> should call him, you should call him John the Lutheran. Would be more accurate." We thought. Well, we may be, it was probably theologically correct, but not linguistically correct. So we thought, well, we can't quite do that. So we looked it up, and actually in the Greek, there are two different words. One is baptist, baptist, baptistes. The other is baptizer, a participle. So the New Testament is called two different things, and we try to follow that. If the Greek calls him John the baptizer, we call him John the baptizer. If it calls him John the baptist, We call him John the Baptist. So yes, John was a Baptist, but he wasn't Southern Baptist or American Baptist. He was actually Lutheran Baptist, but we can't really put that in there. I won't talk about Jesus Christ, you know that, but a lot of people don't understand that Jesus is his name, like John Smith. Jesus is John. Christ is Smith. Christ is his title, his job. As the anointed Messiah so you could translate Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ so one is his personal name and his personal name is the same as whose name Joshua Joshua Joshua. the devil why did you guys capitalize devil are you devil worshipers or are you dishonoring him (laughs) we said well not really either why do we capitalize devil Because there aren't many devils in the Bible in Greek. We sometimes talk about many devils, but there's only one devil, one Diabolus. That's his title. He's the Satan, or he's the Diabolus. So because it's his title, he should be capitalized. It's not honoring him, it's just saying it's his title. He is the devil, He's he's the ringleader. And some people thought, some people think capitalization is honor. It isn't, it's just making a title. Who are some other notable pers- personalities that we capitalize? President. President. Moses. Mo- James. I was thinking of the Easter Bunny, actually, myself. <laughs> so we capitalize the Easter Bunny. Uh, the, the great pumpkin. We, 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 yeah, Santa Claus. We're not deifying them by capitalizing it. We're simply saying Santa Claus, which is St. Nicholas originally, that's their title. <laughs> I'll just, do, I'll just do the horseman one, and then we'll, it's about our time, right? So I'll just mention the horseman. Many times in the Bible it refers to horsemen. But if you look at what's actually happening, they were not riding horses in battle. The first guy that did that well was Alexander the Great in 300 B.C. The battles were all chariot battles. They may have fled on horses, or scouts may have gone horsemen. So the word that's often translated horseman is actually the charioteers. Usually there was a driver and the shooter. So many times, even at Ahab's time in 800 B.C., the battles were all chariot battles. They weren't cavalry battles. For one thing, what was the problem? They didn't have stirrups. Fighting from horseback without stirrups and well a pommel to grab onto isn't a really big advantage. <clears throat> so they rode their horses real fast to get there, burned down some villages, jumped back on their horses, and took off. That's still the way the British operated during the revolution. It was just like the transport to get them there. They weren't fighting. So horsemen. Hittites, that's a bigger one. You can read about that. I won't go into that. So are we just about quarter? We'll just take some questions. What time do we have? Almost quarter after? OK, we've got time for a few questions. And next week we'll be starting places. I'm not going to spend too long on places. How do you find lost cities? Then we'll start to be talking to things like tombs, coffins, cheese curds, all of that sort of stuff. Okay, question. So when John saw the, in Revelation the four horsemen, was he looking at four chariot drivers? No, I think those are horsemen, because I think those are based on Zechariah. If you, you know the opening scene of Zechariah, there are the four horsemen in Zechariah at the beginning. And I there are chariot drivers there too. And I think there, if I remember, I didn't look it up, but I think in Zechariah, the boss who comes to talk to the angels, he has a chariot, I think. But the... I think there are horsemen in Zechariah. So I think, I think in Revelation the four horsemen are based on the opening and closing vision of Zechariah's visions. I'm saying that that's the theory I was explaining. I don't think that's historically correct. In other words, I made that map. Yeah, but that's the theory, that there were three of them and they were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. If they were, they probably wouldn't have come from Spain, Tarshish, they would have come from Iran. When the the Persians came to destroy the churches in Israel in about 600, just before the Muslim conquest, Again, the legend is they didn't destroy the church in Bethlehem was the only one they didn't destroy. Why not? Because they came in, and they looked around. Who are those Persian guys up there? And they said, oh, they're the Magi that came from Persia to, to visit Jesus. And they said, all right, put away the torches, guys. Let's, let's move on. And anyway, the ones that had pictures of the Magi as Persians, they did not destroy that church. It's a nice legend. Again, has a fairly good chance of being true, I think. Okay, next week we'll move more to places, especially unknown places. How do you find lost places? Then next week we're going to decide a little bit what we want to do with the third one. So we'll disclose with a prayer. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word as the way to salvation. But it takes us and shows us that these were real people in real times, in real places, living lives much different than ours, but really like ours. And that through them, through these times, through these places, through the cultures they had, you transmitted your word from Eden all the way to us and on to eternity. Amen. Thank you. Okay, next week we'll do places. If you're looking at the book and there's anything you see that I might not